Esther 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days, in the enclosed garden of the king's palace. For all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Bista, Habona, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zertha, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of the law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Kashina, Shitha, Edmatha, Tashish, Meres, Marsena, and Mamukan, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? He asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memukan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, Queen Xerxes, uh, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Mamukan proposed. 
He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each, in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his household. Chapter 2. Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for the beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge, or, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best palace in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihel, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave her a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. 
When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do so. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. This is the word of God. Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, thanks, Ruth, for reading that really long passage with all the unpronounceable names. And uh, you can be glad that I'm not going to pronounce them either. Now, as we um, begin today's passage, I would like to invite us to keep our book of Esther open as we ask God to help us. Would you pray with me? Dear God, we thank you for this book of Esther. And we thank you that uh, you're God who speaks even when your name is not mentioned. And so we pray, God, that as you draw us to you from our busy week of distractions, whether it's school, whether it's work, whether it's family, whether our hobbies, that God, you'll draw us close to you at this point as we open up your word so that we may know you and we may trust you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there are times when God seems silent in our troubled and busy world, where power seems to be in the hands of Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram, or whatever you have. And the everyday people swirled around by the whims or the generosity of what is being posted on our profile. Now, there are times where God seems silent when we have to navigate doctor's clinic, unless you are a doctor, or the funeral parlor, or various life crises without signs and miracles from above. There are times when believers, what rare minorities in their world, faces brunts that we cannot imagine, and they look around and they find no rescue. There are times in history where only godlessness is visible. It could be war, it could be genocide, it could be just abuse. Um, I want to ask this question, dear friends, whether you're young or whether you're not so young. Have you ever experienced the silence of God in your life? That you ask to hear God's voice and you hear nothing? Well, if you have that experience of desperation and God seems to be silent, I'd like to introduce you to the book of Esther. Because Esther is going to be a good companion to you. For in it, you will find that the presence of God is there in the midst of the silence you hear. Alright, so if you have your book of Esther open, I'd like to invite you to look at it with me. Now, the book of Esther was set around, if you know your 
history after before AD is BC is 483 BC to 472 BC. I've got this huge map there for us. Back then, the Persian Empire, the green portion, was the largest of all the empires in the ancient world. Now, it was reigned by powerful Persian kings who lived like gods in their royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And meanwhile, the Jews living in Susa, if you see that little red circle there, the Jews living in Susa, they were actually remnants of the remnants or the leftovers of the leftovers because there were those people who chose not to go back to Jerusalem and they embraced Susa as their home and their identity when the Jews were allowed to return to build the temple of God. So if you see, there are four chronological uh, events that happen is that a few decades before the book of Esther, um, King Cyrus allowed Jews to head back and Zerubbabel brought a huge bunch of Jews back to build the temple of God. Perhaps those who remain are those who are uncertain and they just want to stay in Susa because it feels better. So perhaps the book of Esther in our canon was intentionally written where God's messenger and God's people do not speak openly about God. That's like what it is in school. When you're in church, you can talk about God anytime, but when you're in school, you kind of just quieten down. Perhaps at a time where people do not speak openly about God in this godless Persian citadel of Susa. It was as if God had become silent. Well, this is of course not true because if you look at the chronology, right after the book of Esther, there were two more returns. Um, because the Jews were still alive, two returns back to Jerusalem, one led by Ezra, the other led by Nehemiah. So, uh, the book of Esther is sandwiched between the first and second return of Jerusalem. Okay, so that is the history you kind of get to hear and experience a bit from the book of Esther. So now the book of Esther, if you look at it, is written with amazing tact. Because God was never mentioned. There is there are all kinds of unpronounceable names that Ru read for us, but there's just one name that should be there, but was never there, and that's the name of God. God was never mentioned in the book of Esther. Prayer was never mentioned. Neither were there miracles or signs. It was just absent. But yet, the book of Esther itself was written for the purpose of celebrating God. Okay? It was a crucial book to explain the origin of the Jewish festival of Purim. So that is how people celebrate Purim even today. So that's the date of Purim, March, and the next Purim is going to happen in a few months' time. And the Jews celebrate it even today. And the day, this festival of Purim is to celebrate God rescuing his people from the enemies, the Persians, and particularly from Haman. So it was God's rescue of Jews from extermination, not just those Jews in Susa, you saw that little circle, but the whole green aspect, including Jerusalem, the Jews were saved from death. So now the book of Esther, another thing you need to know is that it is bookend with banquets and feasts. It's always about eating. It begins with eating and it ends with eating and in the middle they are eating. So they are bookend by feasts because it is about feasts. Okay, it is about feasts. But most importantly in this whole book of Esther is that there is this thing called the Great Reversal where things reverse 180 degrees. So um, take note of that as you come back over these four weeks to experience that there are great reversals every time when you see some 
banquets happening. So with that, I want to invite us to see how Esther begins and the author dramatically begins it this way. Look at it with me from chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2 of your Bible. Verse 1 of chapter 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. These Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. Now, King Hasarius, known as Xerxes in the NIV Bible, ruled the greatest empire of the ancient world. Just now we saw the green part. It stretched from India all the way to the Upper Nile region. So if you're in the empire of uh, Persia, there's no other empires that you can see because you are just surrounded by the whole empire. According to Greek historian Herodotus, Xerxes was the son of Darius I and he reigned about 20 years. So now the story begins in the third year of his reign, King Xerxes, he decided to hold his grand banquet for all his nobles and officials, including his military commanders. And he wanted to display this extent of the extent of his glory and his power. And so he did what our modern empires would do. You know what we do? We have National Day Parade. Except that this parade lasts for 180 days, half a year to parade the greatness of the kingdom. Now the question is, why so extensive? Well, we have no idea. Perhaps he was getting ready to expand it further, another military campaign against the Greeks. We have no idea, but it was impressive, it was extensive, it was luxurious. So grand was this banquet that at the end of 180 days, just imagine with me for a moment, no, no nobles, no officials, no commanders would want to get out of that environment of luxury. If you have tasted 180 days of banquet and decadence, you wouldn't want out. You would sell your soul to the Persian king or Persian god to stay in the Persian empire of greatness. Imagine you and I for a moment, we are invited to a great empire, fine dining day and night like this, rubbing shoulders with your favorite actor, actresses, your social media, you know, uh, heroes or heroines, it would be so tempting to just want to stay there and not get out. So tempting to be like them rather than to be different. Now, when 180 days were over, the king extended now a second banquet, now for everyone who lives in the citadel of Susa. So just now, it was for the nobles, the officials, the military commanders, now it's for every single one rich or poor in the whole city of Susa. And it lasts for seven days. Now listen to how elaborate this banquet is. I want you to kind of immerse for a moment and feel uh, how the garden was like. If you look at the Bible, look at me. It is like a fantasy island of decorations that include the best of all cultures that Xerxes possessed. If it's our modern world, you will have the best Nintendo Switch or all kinds of games, the fastest gaming systems that you can imagine, all the best food that you can have. It's just a place of luxury that you stay there and there's no ending. Here, the king would have said, there is no ending to the amount of wine you can drink and there you say there's no ending to the amount of gaming you can do or food you can eat. Forget about the cholesterols. 
Now, the, the, the place is so beautiful, the mosaic pavement of marble, marble of pearl, all the costly stones. You won't find IKEA furnitures in, the, in this place of luxury. You have probably those exclusive couches by Fendi, Kassar, or all the other kind of furniture that I can't pronounce because I can only Google them and I can't pronounce them. Now, that, that was what it is. And at the end, you look at verse 8, it suggests that this second banquet, it was actually all for... Sorry, ladies, it's all for men. It's all for men. They could drink as much as they want with the king's unique goblet of gold. So they would drink with this heavy goblet made of gold until their hands are too weak to carry the heavy goblet. And they'll doze off and they'll wake up and they continue drinking for all seven days. So there we have um, the second banquet. And because the women are not invited, the queen had a third banquet for the women inside the palace enjoying the greatness of it so what we have here is three grand banquets for the nobles for the people for the women three grand display of kingdom the garden the palace now, how difficult it would be just imagine for a moment to live differently in such a wealthy empire to set yourself apart for god and to be different from others now, if you were a Jew back then, you would say probably it was the right choice to be a citizen of Susa rather than to be a citizen of Jerusalem, where the guys are in dust and mud, you know, sticking to the skin, trying to build the temple, and we are here in luxury. It would be much easier to live like everyone else, enjoy the offer of friendship, comfort, pleasure. Perhaps it's the same for us if you live in a world of Twitter or TikTok, to be like the rest and to be praise for who you are now, it's difficult to live a life set apart from god and i just wonder if we pause here for a moment have you found it difficult to live for god to live for him when we are surrounded by the lure of wealth by fame by pleasures by friendships by things that the world or the empire tells us is ours to grab now, as the banquet reaches climax, the final day, if you still have your Bible, when you look at verse 10, it tells us this. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who serve him to bring for him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. No, you know what it means? When you say high spirit of a king who has been drinking for seven days, it's just telling you that he's totally drunk. As with all the other guests, you're all drunken men who at this point, at the peak of 187 days, he says, bring the queen out and let's see the beauty of the queen. But it was likely in such a disrespectful and shameful way that the queen refused to appear before the drunken king and the guests. And so is the irony of the crash of this banquet 187 days of great greatness and on the peak and the pinnacle of that celebration the queen says get lost the queen refused to appear as a display and the seven eunuchs came back empty-handed at that the queen the king became furious and he burned with anger look at verse 13 what happens since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king, seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. 
Now, it's worth noting if you are going to be here for all four weeks, that throughout the book of Esther, the king makes a lot of serious decisions, but none of it his own. He's always listening to someone else and he makes his decisions. So here it is, seven nobles, one of them representing all called Mimukan. Mimukan, look at the king and the nobles and he said, verse 16, <clears throat> now, now, king, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and people, all the peoples, all the provinces of the king Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the women of nobility will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. You know what, king? After this day, when we all go home, our wives are all going to be like that. Okay, the king's advisor turns that one event of the queen's refusal to be a political, uh, politically charged event and gave the advice to depose, divorce, get rid of the queen. Set her as an example for all the other women. No recourse, no forgiveness, no chance of explanation for the queen. Now, it's actually one of the longest speech in the book of Esther, and Mahmoud Khan presented his gender with these words. He says, if it pleases the king, take note of these words because it's going to come back. Every time when someone says, it pleases the king, the king is very pleased, and he will say, take whatever advice you have. He says, if it pleases the king, don't just depose the queen, but verse 22, then you proclaim to the whole world that every man is the boss of his household. Okay. So the king, who was powerless to his wife's respect, then set this comical law in his whole grand empire to say that a man, every man is the ruler, the king of his household. Every man is the boss of his household. You know what it does? It just reminds everyone again and again that the king was not able to keep his own wife. So in the first chapter, we see the empire is powerful is as powerful as the king, but yet the deposing of Queen Vashti reveals the king is not all that powerful. It has always been, the reality is this, it has always been God who is in control because it was God who brought the Babylonian down and gave the power to the Persians and soon he will give it to the Greeks and then he will be given to the Romans who are no longer in power today. It is always God who hands the power. Xerxes in all his glory will eventually be deposed. And through the hand of Xerxes, the removal of Queen Vashti, God will set the stage for another queen who will rescue God's people and bring about God's promises. And so the first displaying of power brings us to this. Now, sometime later, as we go on, chapter 2, verse 1, the king's fury start to subside, he start to wake up from his wine and he thinks, hey, gosh, how come I don't have a queen? So he remembered what the queen did to him, what he did to her, and he realized, you know what, I got this vast empire, no queen. Why do I go around to other nations with no queen? That's kind of a joke. So he was visibly disturbed and so disturbed, his personal attendants, who is not supposed to take care of political stuff, says, hey, king, you know what? Let me give you a good idea. Why don't you search for beautiful young virgins from all your 127 provinces, 
your whole realm and bring this beautiful woman into the harem and the citadel. Give them this 12 months of beauty treatment. Just dip them in oil, you know, perfume, cosmetics, and then they will compete to please you. And the winner will be made queen instead of Vashti. Another queen will be the display for the king. You know what? This is a really, really terrible, terrible advice. Because first of all, you just objectify all the women in the realm and potentially destroy their lives. No, it was wrapped up as a fantasy, searching for a queen, but it's no less abuse of power. Now, some of them may say this. It says, hey, it's, it's actually not too bad. You know, they get better food, they get good food, you know, they, they stay in the palace and, and, and just be one of the women that the king looked up to. But you know what? That's exactly what the empire wants you to know. But the moment you are living in this world, you forget that you are the image bearer of God. You're just searching to get the scrums and the, the bits that are left over in this vast, beautiful empire. So it was announced and all these people came in because the king who displayed that he is one who controls everything but is not in control of anything. And so he said yes and this happened. So with that introduction of the king, we step into chapter 2 of the book of Esther where we are introduced to the heroes of the book. Now, as you are in... Esther chapter 2, I want you to look at chapter 2 verse 5 with me. Please look at it with me as they introduce you to the heroes. And this is a really very important uh, introduction. Verse 5 gives us the genealogy of this man called Mordecai. And it will be crucial in the book development later on. We are told that Mordecai is a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, the son of Jaya, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who is the father of Saul, Israel's first king. Now, Mordecai's link with King Saul set the stage for chapter 3 next week, where a villain will be introduced as the descendant of King Agag. Now, who is King Saul? King Saul is the first king of Israel. Who is King Agag? He is the downfall of the crown of King Saul. We'll hear about it very soon. We'll have to hold our horses as the plot unfolds. But Mordecai, he is a man who is from lying off or related to King Saul. He has a cousin in the meanwhile, also known as Esther. In the words of the Persians, she was lovely. She has a lovely figure and was beautiful. So as the plot unfolds, we are told that Esther was not only beautiful, she was really wise and charming, for she pleased the king's eunuch Haggai very quickly and won his favor. So Haggai assigned seven female attendants to Esther and gave her the best possible treatment. But I just want to point out to you, as you read this, or if you have a children's Bible and Esther looks like a pretty book, I tell you it's no fairy tale. Look at verse 14 with me at what happens to all these women. Look at it with me, verse 14 of chapter 2. In the evening, this woman she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shezgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless she was pleased with her and summon her by name. What he's saying here is this. This tens, if not hundreds of women who entered the king's harem through eunuch Haggai, 
you'll be given this 12 month of beauty treatment to be sent for one night with the king. And the night when the sun comes out, she leaves the king's room and to the other side of the harem, she becomes officially a practical widow concubine for the rest of her life. Unless the king actually remembers her name, that's your life. You say that you never get married, you never have your own children, you will be there until you die, unless the king remembers your name. And commentaries says that the boys do not escape this. Because of this structure of the empire, every year hundreds of young boys are made eunuchs just to sustain the kind of empire that it has. So the women, the old young women are brought in and become practical widows. Young boys will make eunuch before they even know what it means to chase a lady. So this is not a fairy tale account. We are not told what Esther thought throughout the occurrence, but she heeded Mordecai's advice, did her best, hid her nationality, she won the favor of Haggai and everyone she saw. And in the 10th month, the month of Tabath, in the seventh year of Xerxes' reign, that is four years after Vashti was deposed, Esther won the favor of the king and the royal crown was set on her head. Now at this, the king gave a banquet, again, food, right? Banquet to all his nobles, his officials, declaring it's Esther's banquet. And uh, public holiday was set there. Good on you if you're going to school because you got a new holiday. I don't know if he takes away the old holiday he gave to Vashti, but there's a new holiday for Queen Esther, so you celebrate Queen Esther and you don't go to school or go to work. But what is important in this point is that there's this banquet called banquet, Esther's Banquet. And it's going to prepare us that Esther's going to have two more banquets in chapter 5 and 7 that's going to reverse the life and the history of the Jews. Now, as you are still with me, as the plot thickens, we see the ugliness when power is being abused. This empire was as vast as the king's lust. But yet, if you notice, God's hand was there to raise this humble Jewish girl to be queen of Persia. There was a divine hand that brings divine good out of human evil. And because of this rescue that will come through Esther, there will come another humble Jewish girl 500 years later on in, this, in, in his time in the line of King David. You, you have read that just now together in Luke chapter 2, that in the days of Caesar Augustus, by then nobody knows who is Xerxes because Caesar Augustus was the great emperor of the great Roman Empire, the biggest empire in the world. His last was for money. And because he lasts for money, he gave this command, every man and woman, I don't care if you're a third trimester, you're going to deliver tomorrow, you go back to your hometown, register and pay tax. And because of that, there is this unknown young lady, young girl, who have to travel at her third trimester to her hometown of Bethlehem. And there she gave birth and so fulfilled God's promise to bring the divine king, to bring salvation and rescue to all generations. We know that is Mary and Jesus, the king of the universe. 
I want to ask this question. Are there times where you think that evil seems to take the center stage and God seems hidden in your life? Or perhaps power resides in the wrong hands or trouble looks as though they're here to stay or persecution or pain just weigh heavily on churches, on eyebrows of your parents or yourself or people you see. Or perhaps you think that God is just so distant, He doesn't care. Well, the book of Esther reminds us that God may hide Himself, but He's never absent. The world may ignore Him and create our own God-like leaders, virtual or otherwise, but God is still in control because His plan will come to pass. So with that, we finally come to the end of chapter 2 and all good plots must end with a good twist. So there's this short but very crucial event that will come back later in the book, but for now, it prepares us for it. So verse 21, look at chapter 2, verse 21 with me. Chapter 2, verse 21, let me read it for us in this closing part of chapter 2 of Esther. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Tana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Why did the two men got angry and want to kill the king? We have no idea, but they were so close to the king, they were just one door away from the king. And the king would have just easily died. But as coincidence, if you can say, has it, you have this three character, the Jew, Mordecai, happened to be there at the right place at the right time, hear the right thing, and told the queen, with Esther, who happened at that right time at the right place, was still in favor with the king, and so she reported it. And the king Xerxes, by the providence of the hidden one, was kept alive. And he's such a forgetful man that the providence of God also that this event was recorded in the book of Annals and would be part of the great reversal in the later episodes. But so important is this rescue by Mordecai that even though he will soon be forgotten, almost killed and almost hung on this huge thing that was prepared for him, at the end of Esther, you'll find that he becomes the second most important person in the whole Persian Empire, just like Daniel was a few decades before him. So dear friends, as we wrap up this, let us bring this up, that there are great powers and wealth in our world that can easily captivate us. Good income, perhaps for those who are working, security, comfort, harmony, gaming, um, all kinds of things, results, there are all kinds of things that will lure us. Like the nobles, the people of Susa, the taste of luxury is so sweet and when you taste it, it's very hard to turn away from it. God may seem so distant and absent, while world may seem so real and present. In these circumstances, as we wrap it up, how will we see our world when God seems silent or seems distant? Or perhaps the great empire and the culture of our world seems to have silenced God. Most of you who don't know, or may not know, but today is actually the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Churches. It's a day where we pray for Christians around the world, where they live in their world where God is totally silenced, 
or where Christians are being forced underground because God is not accepted there. I want to read to you a story of this young girl, 23 year old from India, who lives in a world where God is being silent. Let me read to you. Her name is Sumi. As you am I, I want to read to you her story. Listen with me as I share what she said. Now, Sumi was 25 years old when she was kicked out of her village for following Jesus. Along with her husband, Ravi, they had four small children. They live in a small hut on the outskirts of the village, exposed to the elements and the wild animals at night. Often, she said, we were threatened by the village extremists to stop going to prayer meetings and to stop sharing about Jesus, Sumi said. Despite the warnings, my husband never quit. He was beaten many times for sharing the gospel, but he continued sharing the love of Christ to anyone who was willing to listen. But after a few months, the Hindu extremists came in search of Ravi. They took him away and they just shot him. And just like that, all because he dared to share his faith in Jesus. And so Sumi was left alone to provide care for her four children. And she faced the same threats from the extremists. But she's continuing her husband's ministry and sharing Jesus with everyone she can. Now, there are times where God will be silenced by persecution, or it seems to be countries that we know many Christians, they're forced to go without building a license. Christians may lose their homes and even families. But there are also times where Christians are not persecuted, but they are tempted to forget God and leave God behind to conform to the slogan of the world, like the banquets in the Citadel of Susa. The slogan is not just drink, but get drunk. The slogan of the empire is not just have pleasure, but max it out. The slogan is not just do you, you know, you do you, but you do you to the max. Because you have one life, live it to the best. Don't live with regrets. Don't leave any, un, you know, any of your desires unturned. Live to the max. But the book of Esther tells us that behind the great power of the world is a greater power than us. The hand of God is mightier than the hands of men. The ways of God is higher than the ways of men. So as we wrap up, as we close, the question for us, the takeaway today is how will we keep trusting Him or will we keep trusting Him when we can't hear God at times? When you can't hear God or when you can't see God Will you hang on to him? Because the promise is this, that if you do, the great banquet at the end that's reserved for the divine will have invitation for us. So as I close this time, may God help us so that we can see and see and feel the invisible hands of God even in times where you can't see him in the empire. Let me just close us in prayer. Father, we thank you this uh, afternoon as we look at Esther 1 and 2. Father, we know at times that we can't see you, we can't hear you, and so we make decisions without you. There are times that we cry out and we long to hear you speak to us, but because we can't, we make decisions the way the world wants us to. There are times that we should have followed after you and your people, but we have stayed because the world is too attractive for us to forsake. But yet we know that even in times where it's silent, your forgiveness and your offer of rescue is still available to us. And so we pray 
as we listen to Esther over these four weeks, that we will see your hand. For those of us who have persevered uh, in times of silence, in times of trials, hoping in you, Father, we pray that your spirit help us to hold on to you and to know that there is a greater banquet that the world can offer us and we will be there with Christ when finally it comes to his people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.